Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hi, everyone. We are thrilled to be back for another episode of the Cinematography Salon. My name is Peter Pascucci, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ava Benjamin Shore. And today we have the honor of sitting down with a friend and a visionary artist in the world of production design, Griffin Stoddard. Griffin has a unique background working as a director and then expanding into set design. And his work has been called atmospheric, gothic surrealist, character driven, immersive. It's often the result of extensive research, reference accumulation and close collaboration. Griffin's work has been featured in renowned publications like Vogue, British Vogue, W Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Numero, CR Fashion Book, and the list goes on. He has done commercial work for clients like Burberry, Balenciaga, Marc Jacobs, Dion Lee, Puma, and many more. So today, Ava, Griffin, and I are recording in person at Griffin Studio in East Williamsburg. Griffin, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Woo! So I'm going to pass it over to Ava to kick it off with some questions for Griffin. And yeah, we're super excited to dive in today. Griffin, I love your work. I think it's gorgeous. And I'm really excited to be talking to you today. It's inspiring from like a film standpoint. And I think as a lover of art, I just find a lot of beauty in what you do. Would you be open to talking about how you began working as a production designer and then what precipitated the major shift into production designing as a career? Yeah, So after college, I interned at a large fashion photography agency. And while I was interning there, I was starting to work as a director and I wasn't making a lot of money and I was not happy at the agency. And when I left, I needed to like find a way to pay the bills because being a music video director at the lowest tier of record label budgets is not super lucrative. And like the last big job that I did while I was at the agency was a campaign and the set designer on that made a big impression on me. At the agency, part of my job description was like getting these huge fashion photographers to direct things. Usually they're directing campaigns or shooting campaigns that have no video component at all. And around the time I was working there, the video element was becoming more and more important. And so I was like writing treatments and helping write treatments for these photographers to get directing work. And that was not very spiritually enriching. (laughs) And there was this moment where we were having like a conference call with someone for who was shooting an element of the ad and the set designer. Mary was on the call and everyone was kind of like beating around the bush and like throwing up really impractical, huge ideas. And we were like two weeks out from this shoot. And Mary was just like, it sounds like you guys don't know what you want. So why don't you give me a call back when you're ready and just left the conference call. And I was like, oh my God, I need to speak to this woman. That moment just really spoke to a lot of the frustrations I was feeling while working at the agency. So I went up to her on set and asked if I could come work for her. And she she just said yes. And I went and visited her studio in Red Hook. And then I started assisting her. And I assisted her on maybe five or six jobs. And I was still doing directing work. And she has a, a, a big set design agency. 
and she represents younger set designers and provides a ton of productions for them. And at the time, she was looking to expand her agency into a more multidisciplinary sort of model. And I showed her my directing work, and she was like, okay, cool, why don't we start integrating you into this agency? And I guess she didn't brief the other people in the office because all of a sudden they were like, here's a set design job. And I was like, okay. I did the set design for my own videos. But then, yeah, it just snowballed. And then while I was still with them doing set design, I moved to a different directing representation. And it just wasn't a great fit. Like the briefs they had coming in were just not my vibe. And I just stopped getting work as a director. And around the same time that was happening, I was getting so much more work as a set designer and I was starting to make money. And so I just let it happen, not consciously necessarily, but it was a very gradual shift. And eventually I was just too busy to pitch on music videos. And I was just really tired of like pitching and not getting anything. It was like a year at this new production company of just pitching and not winning any jobs and coming really close and then not getting it. It was like the last round of me versus some other person and then the label ghosts you and then you don't hear anything but then the video comes out and it's like a shot for shot remake of your treatment. And I was just like, okay, whatever. Like, I'll just go with set design for a while and see how that works. Yeah, I mean, the other thing too is like, I guess for people who don't know you well, it might be interesting to hear a little bit about some of your interests growing up and sort of why set design is such a natural fit for you and your talents because I think that I know you well and like there's so much world building to your work and it has such an immersive quality and I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about where some of that inspiration comes from and what you love about being a production designer and a set designer. When I was a kid really as long as I can remember I was always being some kind of character and whatever character I was inhabiting, it came with a world. It wasn't just, I'm going to wear this outfit. There has to be lore and visuals. <laughs> and I would put on plays and do the costumes, but then also do the sets. And I was attracted to directing as a means of creating a world and having total control not in the totalitarian sense, but just like the ability to manipulate and edit every element of your surroundings was really attractive to me. And I think there were also a, a lot of moments watching like behind the scenes content on DVDs where I would see people making the sets. And for some reason that just was very captivating to me. And I remember actually this moment where Oh God, I mean, it, everything always comes back to the Wicked Witch of the West, but the witch was the first thing that I responded to. Like my mom says that I was like, before I could speak, I was like obsessed with her. It was the only thing that I would respond to as like a pre-verbal child. And I loved everything about her. I loved the way she looked. I loved every detail of her costume. These were thoughts I was having as like four-year-old, five-year-old. I was like, I love the cut on her skirt and the way that the sleeves are bigger here and really slender there. And I love the way it moves when she walks in it. And I also thought her castle was just so fab. 
And I remember speaking to my mom and being like, where is this place we need to go? And she was like, oh, they made it. They built it. And that was like mind explosion moment for me. I remember where we were sitting in our house. Like I was just, it was so crazy for me to wrap my head around that idea. And the fact that like people who weren't me made that. I was like, oh my God, there are people out there who made the same decisions I would make. I don't know. It was just really exciting realizing that the castle was something that was built. But it was also a little bit heartbreaking in a way because I was like, I, she had to explain to me that it no longer existed and we couldn't go to the castle. So yeah, we were talking about this a little bit ago, but directing and set design were never two separate things to me. When I was directing, I was also doing the set stuff. They're just like not two different jobs to me. And I did a lot of Halloween displays like every year and actually learned so much of, I created like a, basically the foundation of my production design knowledge doing the Halloween displays. And there's always a moment on almost every job where I'm like, this is so funny that I'm like working with the exact same materials that I was when I was like 10. What am I doing with my life? Outside my house, we did, as I like got older and my visual language became more mature, the like theme and direction of the Halloween display became this, the house was like this sunken Victorian mansion and the front yard was like a graveyard. And I made all of the tombstones, carved them and scenic them. And there were like all of these shriveled, dried corpses on stakes that would like line the walkway. And those took so long to make. So building up the quantity of those took many years. And then eventually there were some like very rudimentary animatronic props and they all had names and there were some witches. But I was really specific about what I thought was acceptable to be part of a Halloween display. Even though I love witch hats, for some reason, the witches in this environment, they couldn't have witch hats. They had to be more like swamp hags because that just was like, I don't know. But there were three witches. We called them the girls. Just like, have you set up the girls yet? And I still have stress dreams about Halloween setup time. To this day, I will wake up in a sweat because I'm dreaming about the sun is setting and the girls aren't all set up yet. And one of them is misfiring and the smoke machine isn't working. And that was like last week was my most recent stress dream, Halloween stress dream. Incredible. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's kind of an interesting segue into like a question that I had, which I think about quite a bit because I feel like a, a long time ago we had a conversation about, I think we we're on like set together and we were talking about the role of a designer and stuff. And I'm just curious, like present day, how you define a production designer's role. And specifically, I've heard you refer to it more holistically as just instead of set designer or production designer, just like a designer. And I think that was probably one of the first times I heard it referred to in that way. And it kind of helped me wrap my head around how important that role is and like how important it is for a DP and for like directors too to like think of a production designer, a set designer as just the designer of a shoot. And I think it gets to this idea of like before the art department gets to work, like there is nothing to shoot and they're the ones who create the world that then we get to inhabit and capture. And I'd just be curious to hear you talk a little bit about your definition of a set designer? I think that there's a very 
specific difference between set design and production design. I would say that my job is I'm a set designer currently. I do mostly work in fashion and the environments I'm building are like one-offs in the sense that it's one space created for like one image or one scene or what have you. It's not, I'm not serving like a larger story other than the theoretical one that we use to like shape the fashion story. In terms of a movie, I would say the production designer is responsible for the way the world of that script looks. Their job is from day one is to interpret the script and start defining the visual rules of that universe. And even on shoots where there are no set builds, where it's just skeleton crews shooting in locations, I still don't think that that can exist without a production designer. Maybe that role is played by the director or anyone can be that person, but someone has to consider what the world of this script is going to look like and what the rules and structure of the way the script is rendered visually are. One follow-up I had to that was, because I feel like I've had people say to me before, like if a project comes out and it's literally like a white psych and just talent in a look, and then there's a production designer credited, people are like, what did the production designer do? Or like, what's their role in that like situation? And like, I feel like knowing you and having worked with you and hearing your sort of philosophy on design and things, to me, it makes sense what the production designer's role is in that situation. But I'd be curious for you to talk a little bit about if you've ever, I mean, I'm sure in your fashion work and stuff, there have been times where it's like incredibly minimal, but are those choices that you're making as a designer? Like how exactly does that work when it's everything stripped away, but you're the designer of a shoot? I think that is entirely dependent on who your collaborators are, because there have been times where I am set designing or production designing a job that like has basically nothing. It's like just a backdrop or whatever. And I can be still very involved in creative conversations with the client or the photographer, or the DP or the director, or whatever. But then there are also scenarios where I don't even speak to those people. I'm just like sitting in a chair in the corner. And yeah, it just depends how much the client or photographer or director, how they work. And if they're used to collaborating with a production designer, then maybe they will be more involved with you and asking questions about how things should be shot. And if there are some elements that you have, furniture, whatever, props, then yeah, it's about asking like, is this necessary here? Is this not? Do you think that at this point in your career as a production designer, you've developed an aesthetic where people are pre-selecting you for the work that they have? Because it all fits together when I look at your work. I would say that in the last six to eight months, that's closer to truth. But I recently switched agencies and my representation now is much more fashion focused. And I think that as a result, the work that they're putting me up for is just naturally a bit more friendly to the type of work that I want to do. And so I think my sensibilities and taste comes through much stronger as a result of working with artists that my agency thinks I should be working with or wants me to work with, you know. Whereas before it was a bit more of a mixed bag. Like every now and then I would do like a fashion shoot that was like really high concept and a very good fit. 
And then I would all of a sudden do like a Hanes commercial or something. But I will also say that it's really hard for my taste and what I like to not come through in my work because I just am so strongly averse to like things that I don't like or don't find interesting. I mean, that's part of the reason why I wasn't getting any jobs as a director. I only wanted to do what I wanted to do. Every single time my agent would come back and be like, this isn't a pop treatment. You need to go back and like add more pictures that like show glam and makeup and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I just couldn't be bothered to do that. I think that's why things didn't work out. For the record, I'm ready to see your Hanes commercial. Um, (laughs) I want to know what that's like. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can do it. Look, I'm anything if not versatile, but it's definitely always a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) And I just don't think I'm very good at it. Like, I don't think I'm a great commercial artist. Across your work, something I've noticed and I think is so beautiful is how you will decontextualize objects of destruction, or consumerism, or overlooked items, and turn them into beautiful pieces of art. And the example of like the burned out shell of a car in the Kim Petras music video, there's crumbling concrete and rebar in the Vogue spread. In the Ease to More video, there's a tanning bed. And then in the Craig McDean series, there's like all of this kind of 80s video camera technology. And I guess I'm just curious, can you talk about the moment of inspiration when you see objects that have the potential to be elevated? And what does that feel like for you? I love that question. That's funny you ask that, actually. I've been feeling super depressed these past few weeks and uninspired because I'm just like tired and burnt out. And the other day I was driving down Broadway and I saw there was like a row of police cars and one of them was like smashed really violently and had this like indent. And immediately when I saw it, I just pictured a woman like inside this indent and it was like a really specific image that came to mind. And so sometimes it's like that I'll see something and then I will see an image or like a world or a person that relates to it. Or I'll just feel excited by the way something looks. And those are definitely the best moments. And I really only experience those moments if I'm out and about walking around aimlessly or like coming across things unexpectedly. And I don't get to do that very much currently because I'm just like working. (laughs) So when it does happen, it's really lovely. Though I will say the range of things that inspire me or images and things that come to mind when I am inspired is not super wide. Like I think I just have a really specific well of things that will interest me and will get me off. Concrete, for example, I'm fucking obsessed with it. I just did a huge concrete set a couple weeks ago and I feel like I do concrete things like once a month or something. I feel like one thing that's come up on this show, like that we've talked to cinematographers and directors about, is like how important it is to be someone who exists in the world and observes the natural world around us to inspire our work. And I think Ava's question is definitely getting at that, but I would love to also hear more generally like where you derive inspiration from and if it's a combination of image research and just being inspired by the things around you. And yeah, just what you said is really interesting about how it's such a narrow scope. And I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit more about practically speaking, where some of these ideas originate. Yeah. I think one that works in our field should always be exposing themselves to as much of the world as they can. 
culturing themselves, if you will, like going to shows, going to galleries, all of that, but also just being outside and putting yourself in situations that you wouldn't normally find yourself in. Again, I, I really don't do this as much as I should or want to, especially when you're, it's, yeah, it's just like when you're burnt out and you've done six jobs in a row and you have a week off and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to like go see an art show. I oftentimes just end up like sleeping for like 18 hours a day instead. Yeah. When I'm like operating at my finest, I am looking through books a lot. Art books doesn't, I'm like, I don't really discriminate what kind of books I look through. I'll just go to any used bookstore and go into like the art or photography section and just buy a bunch of $2 books and take them home and then look through them and tag pages. Accumulating those references is very important to me. But a lot of the time, I don't have time to conceptualize a project. So the product will just be a result of whatever is on my mind at that moment. This crown over here, for example, I had, I don't know, four days to come up with a crown of thorns design and I have recently been reading the Lord of the Rings and then watching all the movies again and so that's why that looks like the Witch King of Angmar's helmet and then there was another element of the shoot that I had to make a chair they just wanted a brutalist chair and it looks like the Tower of Orthanc the black obsidian monolith with all of these sharp black glistening textures and I, th I think that's kind of hilarious. I definitely get off on like, it's like this little secret that I get to take with me. And when I see like the product, which is something that is going to be consumed by a lot of people and seen by a lot of people that I would never interact with normally. This particular one is for a, a musician that I don't really listen to. But the fact that like part of this image that will be consumed by a lot of people, it looks the way it does because... I happened to be rereading The Lord of the Rings. That's like kind of fun to me. Hi, we are excited to announce our partnership with Lao Lenses by Venus Optics. Laua has had a long history of providing cinematographers with unique and state-of-the-art lens options, including their recent Proteus 2x Anamorphic series, which remains the most accessible T2.0 option in the market for professional production. A big thank you to Sandus for helping support our show as well as part of their Relentless Reliability campaign. The extreme portable solid-state drive has become an essential on film sets and a personal favorite of mine for how durable, reliable, and fast it is. Sandus leads in drive and memory card technology, emphasizing not just storage, but everything worth keeping. So recently, you released this incredibly beautiful and specific editorial photo spread that was shot by Elisaveta Porodina, and I just think it's so unique and so beautiful because it just, to me, is visually is so unique, both from like the design elements, but also from the technique that was done to shoot it. And the images just look so like, they definitely don't look digital and they don't even look like film photography. They look like some mixture of fine art and photography and it's totally stunning. And I was just kind of curious you were mentioning earlier how in the last like six to eight months, you've started to be paired up with artists that you align with more closely. What's it like in those situations when you're collaborating with someone with that specific of a look like Elisabetta? And if you could just talk a little bit about the importance of prioritizing those kind of projects and really like leaning into artists who have the same sensibilities and aesthetic. 
Yeah. Working with her is kind of a very idealized version of the creative process. I am so happy to have met her this year and to work on the things that we've been doing is always so stimulating to me. Her style is very much, I get the most information out of hearing her talk about the images that she wants to make. She doesn't show me a bunch of references, really. There will be a deck that we walk through and a couple references, but then she'll talk about what she wants this image to feel like. For this one with Vogue China, there was an image of a girl sitting in a chair that was kind of tan and ugly and looked a little bit fleshy. And we talked about this image for a while and she was like, I want it to look like she's sitting in a fleshy human chair that is like a Francis Bacon painting made physical. She will give me like this beautiful sentence or prompt and then total freedom to come back to her with whatever the fuck I want to do. And she's always into it. And she will always have really helpful direction. If I'm not connecting with whatever it is that I need to make or design, she'll challenge me to think about it in a different way. There's always like a desire to find emotion from the images with her. And it's really exciting to work with her because then I find myself doing the same with the pieces or environments that I'm making. That particular story, for example, I found myself working with materials I've never worked with before. And each piece that I made for that story was just a really interesting and satisfying process. In the end, all of the pieces had this very visceral feeling to them, the same way a Francis Bacon painting does. Everything looked sick and angry and like a bit violent too, but then through her lens, it's like this soft, sickly, beautiful thing. She works with the same lighting technician every time and they're incredibly technical in their lighting approach. They will have 15 lights and they travel around with this like antique metal tray that is always bouncing rippled light over the set and there'll be like this tiny little dado like 500 feet away that's lighting the corner of someone's eyelash or something and I love watching them light a set and they also there is so much respect towards my department and like what we're doing which is Unfortunately, not very common. A lot of the time I feel like I just have to run in and build something as fast as possibly can and then get out and like hide. And it's always a really nice experience working with the both of them. She determines the palette and like the, it's almost like a LUT. After shooting some test shots and basically just feeling out what is right, it's super cool to even hear that. It doesn't surprise me at all that it's so lighting heavy. I think what's really interesting about the story you just shared is that you talked about something that I have noticed as well when working on set as a DP. Occasionally I'll work with a director. Maybe they have more of a fine art background, but they'll say things to me that are not specific in terms of like, I want the light to be over here or to be warm but they will use language that is like lighting up 
some part of my imagination that I go, whoa, and then something clicks and then I intuitively know what's happening. Anyways, I was doing a color session recently and I kind of said something that was the same thing to the colorist. There was more of a theoretical thing or an emotional thing that had nothing to do with, hey, can you raise the contrast or make the highlights warm? And then he did something that was so surprising. And I was like, whoa, that felt right. So really, I think what I'm curious about is as you analyze and think about what you're responding to, working with a photographer or a director, does that inform how you communicate your own ideas to your team? Yes. My direction is rarely technical and specific. It's almost always random and theoretical. There was this one color session I was doing, and I was working with a very talented colorist who just, we just like weren't a match. And I, I don't know anything about color. Like I hate when I have to do a color session because I don't know anything about it. I just know what feels right and what doesn't feel right. And I would try like giving him direction and he just was like, what the hell are you saying? <laughs> For me, building a, a team that is able to respond to that kind of direction is super important. One of my dearest collaborators is a scenic painter. We did this horror themed project together that was our first job together and she just like got it every single time I would say some like useless string of words together and my work has become so much stronger because of her becoming part of my team it's hard to find people that speak the same language as you but it's a very important investment of time and resources I think yeah it's such an interesting insight I mean it's like you think the work is learning the technical or knowing how to execute everything. And then you actually realize that the work is way more ethereal. <laughs> it's like way more hard to grasp. It's more about like assembling the team and just being able to articulate a memory or articulate a feeling. It's so interesting. It's very clear that's in your work, like the beauty and the ambiguity of the direction and not spelling it out, but letting it have a life of its own in certain ways super cool. Just curious to hear your perspective on this in this moment, but we've talked before about inevitably becoming jaded or becoming bitter toward this industry and stuff. And it's kind of curious to hear how you feel about age and experience as it relates to your inner artistic voice and whether you think that becoming more experienced and getting older has helped your inner voice grow or shrink. I think getting older and accumulating more experience has allowed me to articulate my inner voice, if you will, better. But doing that requires more stimulation or inspiration. Like it's a heavier lift to get me in a place of wanting to express that voice. Right now, particularly, I've worked harder in the last year than I ever have. And I'm so tired and so crotchety and honestly not super pleasant to be around. And it's really hard to make things when you're worn down to the bone. I think the only like aid to that is just being really militant about protecting your time because without the time to heal and recover from creating content for a commercial industry like you actually will spiritually die 
And it's also about finding those people that are like-minded, working with Elisabetta, even a commercial project becomes a fine art project, or at least it's challenging and exciting. Yeah, I think it's about protecting your time and finding and nurturing relationships that allow you to keep going. I'm not a spokesperson for doing either of those things because I really don't protect my time all that well at all, actually. <laughs> no, it makes sense. I think the work reflects this curation of people and sensibilities and like, it's so true that you can carve that out in a commercial space if you're very intentional. And yeah, it's interesting, this whole larger theme of like how narrow your scope of interests are and how much that affects the work being created. And I think there's like a lot of value in that is to actually be interested in like the most finite thing and try to create art and beauty out of that. And yeah, it's very interesting. One question we had was when you're designing a shoot or directing a shoot, what have you noticed that kind of works well in terms of a collaboration with a DP or photographer and anything you can share in terms of experiences where certain actions maybe like stifled the creative process or certain instances where actions really helped along the creative process of any given project? I think something that I'm often like surprised by not experiencing more is just conversations starting as soon as possible conversations between director, DP, photographer should begin as soon as they possibly can. I think especially with commercial work, that's not something I experience very much. Sometimes I don't even speak to the DP until I'm on set. And then I'm just like, what in the hell is going on? I could be showing up with anything. Like this person hasn't even seen the drawings. I think always the work is going to be the best when everyone is on the same page, like just goes without saying. And some of the best little moments in a set that I've designed are a result of a DP saying like, oh, can we do something to make this like someone coming in and pointing out something that they think is important and asking, how can I serve that? That always makes the product better because I'm only thinking about what I'm thinking about. My idea, my concept, my drawing or design needs to be like broken apart and opened up by everyone else involved in the project because otherwise it's just my hobby just my sculpture or like my room that i'm just like throwing together i think that's what makes filmmaking and image making so exciting and special and spiritual i guess sometimes is when you experience these great moments of collaboration being challenged by the people you're working with being challenged to think about something a different way. So cool. Yeah. And like, it also relates to assembling the team that can be reactive and can be like present and receptive and open-minded to allow those different perspectives to be nurtured. It's really interesting. In an interview of you that I read, you mentioned that it's important to get along with the people that you work with and how if you don't get along with a director or you don't get along with someone that you're working with that you tend to inevitably just spend a lot of the time and energy trying to avoid conflict versus focusing on the actual creative task at hand. And I think that's a really important insight because I think for a lot of us, we've all been there where whenever contention works its way onto a project, it just is totally to the detriment of the creative. And I'd like to hear any advice on how you've navigated collaborations in that sense and how you've avoided working with people that 
that sort of contention starts to seep in, I guess. I think like these problems that I have with conflict, I only experience them when I'm in the leadership position. Difficulties I have with conflict, I experience that when I'm working with my team, people that are working for me, or when I'm directing and everyone is theoretically working for me or for my idea. When I'm a designer working with like a photographer, I don't really experience that anxiety. I think there's like a guilt component to it. I don't know that I have great advice for it because it's still something I really struggle with. Although as my projects get bigger, the consequences of my avoidance of conflict become more serious because the stakes are much higher. And so it is something that I think about a lot more and I'm constantly challenging myself to address conflict as soon as I possibly can because my instinct is to avoid it because I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I think that naturally over the course of one's career, like you build a Rolodex of people that you work well with and those are the people that you work with the most. But of course, there's always going to be some conflict. And yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure what advice I can give other than addressing it as soon as you can. I find it interesting that there's so many different ways that you can react to people on set. And I know like I'm a very passionate person and sometimes I regret my reaction occasionally. And I find that oftentimes it's like learning the tact of dealing with this stuff. Because I too think that it's important to address conflict. You don't want to let these negative feelings or these, even like if you don't want to bring up conflict because you disagree on a creative thing, like I think it's good to bring those things up in a constructive way, talk about those with people. So I think it's really interesting how we exist in this art, whether you're a DP, whether you are doing production design or set design, where we are learning both how to share our perspectives and be ourself the most, but then also be respectful of other people. It is like this very interesting dance that we do in this art and the world of like commercial and commerce and like learning how to be nice to people and, and pleasant to be around, you know, yes. is, is an interesting thing to learn, I think, as you grow and how do they coexist? Yeah. The art of being pleasant to be around is really hard. That is really important. Do you ever see people that are not pleasant to be around, but still get a very good product out of it? Yes. Yeah, of course. Certain things come to mind for sure. But it's the good product is always by the grace of the other people on the team. If someone that's at the helm of the ship is like tyrannical, like asshole, the product can still be good if the people underneath them are on the same page and working together. Yeah, by the grace of those people, it's a good way to put it. What's your perspective on that, Ava? Like, do you disagree with the idea that good work can be made by someone who is unpleasant and tyrannical? I think it's an interesting thing to think about because we're often really focused on the end product, whether or not we have the deepest connection to it. We want it to at least feel good about it, right? But something that I have been like playing around with in my head for the past maybe year or two is that you don't always get to control the end result, especially in commercials, which has made me think that 
really the thing that is most valuable about what we're doing is actually just the time being there. And like, we are sharing this time together on set. Why not make that as an enjoyable as possible? So do you derive pleasure from being on set and doing these things? Or do you like seeing your work out there? Like, what do you find valuable about this job of being a set designer, production designer, or director? That's a very good question. I like all parts of it, or both, rather. I, of course, love seeing the work out there. Sometimes I don't, because it didn't. Like, they chose final images that I wouldn't have chosen, or, like, they cropped something out, or they cut that scene. So in those scenarios, like, all you have is the experience on set. With set design specifically, like, there is so much problem-solving to be done, especially in fashion and in commercial because you never have enough time and you're like just scrambling to pull something off and these moments of creative problem solving especially when you're doing it with a team are very energizing and exciting and satisfying but also i think that there's always this moment where like it's always like when the atmosphere when haze or smoke or any kind of effects come in it means like you're kind of like you're done the set the set is built it's lit and then you get your atmospherics in there and then you're like, there it is. Wow, that's exactly the way I wanted it to look and it feels exactly the way I want it to feel. Those moments are like so amazing. I miss them a lot, experiencing those moments as a director, especially when you're doing a music video or something. So you like have live music <laughs> accompanying this moment of completion. Those are very special. Love that. Very broad question, but interested to hear you talk about your personal identity, your queerness, and instances where maybe you felt like you've needed to either conform in the industry to certain expectations or just generally how your relationship to your own sexuality has evolved over the course of your life and your career. This was the one that I really didn't feel like I had a good answer for. I think that working in fashion might my sexuality is so irrelevant just because I am the majority, really. I don't really experience feeling isolated in that sense anymore. Maybe I did a bit more doing commercial work, but I think also whether or not I feel aware of my sexuality at work, on set, it's mostly to do with just the development of my own personal relationship to my sexual identity and where I'm at right now is that my surroundings are like my friends at work at a party like I'm really never around straight people I don't really think about it ever it's interesting like do you think that that's you manifesting or do you think that that's like circumstantial I mean it's like at one point you had said something that I found to be really inspiring which was that like and I think this is probably true for a lot of people, but it's like this idea that we go through life maybe hiding that side of ourselves at various points. But then maybe there's a point at which kind of the like fog clears and like you realize that it's such a powerful element of who you are as an artist and your perspective as you go through life. And then you can lean into it and sort of look at it less like a barrier and more as like a power. Sure. I think that feeling or being different from the majority of the people around you. We should all 
be fortunate to experience that because I think it just changes the way you think. And I think it makes one a more sensitive person. And if you're moving through the world that way, I think you're just going to hopefully act with more sensitivity or, yeah, I, I think feeling different is definitely important to me. I often felt very different when I was young, especially before I had even realized that I was gay. I just felt different and it wasn't really about my gayness. And that is totally part of the work I do now. And it's very important to the work I do now. It was always, and it was important to the way I expressed myself as a child too. It was, there was a lot of defiance and angst and that gave me drive to do things. <laughs> and yeah, every now and then still, I do get little moments of satisfaction. And if I am working on something that is going to be consumed by a, an audience that is very different from who I am, that's really satisfying to me because it's like a way of affirming that my interests, which in the past contributed to people being saying X, Y, and Z about me, talking behind my back about me in the halls of middle school or whatever, that differentness is desired or is an asset to my ability to create something that people want or value. And it's kind of the same as what I was talking about earlier with like Lord of the Rings thing and just like having this little secret. It's like when elements that are very tied to like my differentness or gayness or whatever, when those things make their way into something that's widely consumed, it's like a little funny joke to me. That's like a nice little win that I get to smile about when I see the product. To me, I see parallels between you taking angst, finding the positive, finding the beautiful aspects within yourself, despite what other people say. To me, that aligns with you taking things that are overlooked or destroyed and having people look at them and think they're beautiful. I think that's so fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I think that's actually a big part of why I have chosen this as a career is I think it is cool that I am very obsessively interested in like really specific random things and when I get to translate it into something that's consumed by other people and enjoyed by other people that's just really satisfying and it's funny to me I am so obsessed with fabric billowing in the wind like there's nothing better than like a big black billowing piece of fabric and there are like moments in movies that I would rewind and pause and like just obsess over. Still as a 28 year old I watch certain scenes from like Harry Potter or like whatever on YouTube because it's really just perfect to me and then that like informs the choices I make at work and makes it into a product. And that's, it's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've covered some interesting aspects of your influences from like moments of you wandering around the streets of New York or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, which is so interesting to hear. I'm, I'm interested to hear on like a fine art level. Do you have any like favorite art movements or artists? I'd be really curious to hear that aspect 
that like feeds into your artistic soul? Oh, I'm really not educated in, I, yeah, I'm like kind of a, a cretin. <sighs> My answer is no. I don't draw influence from any specific like moments in art history. It's just like specific things that randomly grab my attention. I'm rarely like, oh, I'm really inspired by this painter. It's, I'm inspired by this painting. So I think that's also why I've just avoided studying art and film in like a traditional sense of studying is I, it doesn't feel that relevant to my process. Maybe that's because I don't know what I'm missing out on, but. I mean, do you think like sometimes when it comes to stuff like that, I always wonder, looking at your work, I think it's very original, like it's very singular. Do you consciously choose to grab at things and not focus in on trying to emulate certain things for that reason in order to preserve that originality? Or is it just more subconscious in how the work ends up being so singular? I think it's subconscious. I don't want to do things that I don't want to do <laughs> and I'll avoid that at great personal expense. I respect that. I, I feel like you have a very strong sense of your process and that is driving your choice of creation. I'm like a big film nerd and I watch a lot of stuff and I research and study, but I think what you do artistically and how you get there is really beautiful. And I, you know, no judgments here. I think that's really amazing. Thank um, you. I don't want to say, like, I don't think that film history is important to my process. I just, I didn't really want to study it much when I was in school, and I, I don't now. But, like, Tarkovsky is the most important filmmaker to me, and I wouldn't know who he is if it weren't for, like, film school and studying film and his process specifically is very inspirational to me like this kind of automatic image making stream of consciousness and for him it always came out in a very poetic and beautiful way i think part of the reason why i love him so much is because he also was like really turned on and obsessed by specific things like water falling or like the texture of mud or whatever and it works it's very powerful these shots of the dirt and the scum on the water in the zone in stalker it's so good so so important and i don't think the general public is obsessed with the texture of mud it's so interesting because it's like in those interests and in that like hyper focus and that kind of automatic image making process, he did manage to literally be the originator of so many visuals that we all now consume and that we all now respect and hold up on a pedestal. And there's so many parallels now I'm realizing in the way that you derive satisfaction from having that secret of like my interest in concrete is now being consumed by a lot of people or my interest in something very specific is appealing to the masses. And I think that Tarkovsky is actually a perfect example of how that's true in cinema. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, he was not a, a very commercially successful director in his time. It's definitely more of a niche audience. But yeah, all my directing work looks like very derivative of him 
So I think I actually was, yeah, I was misspeaking earlier. Yeah. It might be a combination of both. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've thought about all that. Yeah. As we're closing, I'm curious to know what directions you'd like your career to head in and are there things you're craving to do as a designer or a director? I think that in the last couple of years, I have found a social community that I feel very connected to intellectually and creatively. And that has yielded a lot of very kind of natural changes or directions in my career or projects. And I'm very into that continuing. I'm definitely not satisfied with how singular my career is right now. I don't want to just be doing set design for fashion photography. I miss directing a lot. I love directing. And I think I can get a lot out of a lot of different things. But I think the freedom to explore other projects and other career paths, you have to have money to do that. I think getting to a place where this job I currently have is allowing me to make those explorations is a priority for me. There have been moments in the past where I have been able to like take a few months off and make a film or something, but I would love for that to be a more regular thing. And I, I would just like the scale of what I'm doing to continue to grow. Like I have no interest in doing small things. I want everything to be bigger. The sets all need to be bigger. <laughs> I hope big sets are in my future. <laughs> um, yeah, and more film, maybe even photography. I've always really avoided that because of the technical aspect of it. And I think just challenging myself to create things for myself is something that I would really like to do because I'm not good at creating without a deadline or a, some kind of impetus other than, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to end on is challenging oneself to create more for yourself. It's interesting. All right, Griffin, thank you so much for having us at your lovely studio and for this interview. We're very grateful to have you on. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. That was fun. I'm really inspired. Yeah, thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you. This episode of the Cinematography Salon podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Ava Benjamin Shore, and David Kruta, with original music by One Wave and edited by Corey Abel. We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon, and we would like to extend a special thanks to the Salon community for supporting our efforts with this show. We'd also like to extend our gratitude to Able Cine for their continued support. If you're unfamiliar with their offerings, Able Cine provides services such as equipment rentals, sales, maintenance, training, and much more. Additionally, they host complimentary events at their various locations. For more details, please visit ablecine.com. If you enjoyed listening to the show, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and news. Thanks.